So <clears throat> today I'll talk about the seventh, fact, seventh factor of awakening, equanimity. Um, you know, they call it the crowning jewel, though to me, it feels like they're all the crowning jewels. So uh, I'd like to begin with um, a teaching that the Buddha gave his son, Rahula. He said, Rahula, develop meditation that is like the earth, for then agreeable and disagreeable sensory impressions will not take charge of your mind. Just as when people throw what is clean and unclean on the earth, feces, urine, saliva, pus or blood, the earth is not horrified, not humiliated or disgusted by it. In the same way, agreeable and disagreeable sensory impressions will not take charge of your mind when you develop meditation like the earth. Equanimity points to a balanced mind, an evenness of mind, a mind that stays open regardless of circumstances. It's a rich, warm, satisfying state of mind. It's not just neutral, but it's a really wholesome state. It's a connection with ourselves. It doesn't resist the unpleasant and it doesn't cling to the pleasant. It has nothing to defend. And it comes naturally anytime the hindrances are suspended. Some years back, um, I read a book uh, that really inspired me uh, on this. Uh, uh, it, it's, um, it's a biography of the nun Tenzin Palmo uh, called Cave in the Snow. Some of you I'm sure have read it. Um, she's a contemporary Tibetan nun, from, originally from England. She spent 12 years living in a cave high up in the Himalayas. The cave was six by 10 feet, and she spent three years of it in full retreat. She never laid down. She slept sitting in, a meditation, in meditation in a wooden meditation box for three hours each night. Her last years were in complete isolation. It was way up in the Himalayas, we'd get like 30 below at times. But that's, that's not what really inspired me. Um, she grew some of her own food, but she depended on the villagers to bring her enough food for each winter because the roads were often closed for you know, six months or more. And every year a villager would show up with her food in a cart you know, and they'd show up in a timely manner. But one year he didn't come and the roads were closed with the weather and she wasn't sure she'd survive the winter. She did have some turnips left. And I guess she, grew, uh, she must have grown those. And she barely survived. But she just kept practicing. And uh, what really impressed me, though, 
is that she never complained to the villagers about not getting her delivery. She never bothered to find out why. The next year, the delivery came as expected. That's, uh, that was an inspiring level of equanimity for me. So developing equanimity affects every aspect of our lives and relationships. And, and it's an essential part of developing the mind. It's the state of staying balanced in the face of what we call the eight worldly winds or the eight vicissitudes. They're called the worldly winds because they easily toss us around. And they're all very familiar to all of us. Pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, and fame and disrepute. Most of us want the four pleasant ones and then want the other four. And despite that life continuously shows us otherwise, we tend to believe if we just do everything right, if we're smart enough and try hard enough, we'll just get the four we like. And um, in daily life, this plays out in just countless of ways. For instance, um, Pleasure and pain are at the center of our addictions. The little reward of pleasure the brain gives us when we check mail or, um, or crave something to eat that may not be so good for us. And we're all familiar with physical pain. Gain or loss, getting what we want and being deprived of, uh, being deprived of, of what we want. We get lots of that. And praise and blame, it can be over big things or for little things. It can be deserved or not. A boss might say, one day you did a great job and then you feel great and then another time criticizing you and you feel bad. In the Dhammapada, the Buddha noticed <clears throat> they find fault in one sitting silently. They find fault in one speaking much. They find fault in one speaking moderately. No one in the world is not found at fault. No person can be found who has been, is, or will be only criticized or only praised. And the last one, fame and disrepute, these are the there are Olympic athletes that see themselves as failures if they get the bronze. So these are, uh, we definitely get incredibly tossed around by these um, worldly winds. When I first learned about the worldly winds, uh, I only thought of them in relation to my daily life. Um, but as I start paying attention on retreat, I realized they easily, easily show up on retreat. Um, I'm sure many of you have been easily tossed around by pleasure and pain at some point on retreat. My body feels good, I'm happy, and another time my back hurts, my knee hurts, I can't practice. Pretty familiar territory for some of us. Or maybe in 
practice, you've experienced being tossed around by gain and loss. My concentration was so good. It was just so good. And then later, I was completely distracted. What did I do wrong? And sometimes we're tossed around by praising, blaming ourselves, congratulating ourselves on being such a good yogi. I kept the schedule really well. I showed up to everything. And I was mindful all day long. And then another time, you know, berating ourselves for not trying hard enough. You know, on fame and disrepute, I'll share a little story that uh, happened to me. Um, uh, I was on a long residential retreat. I was a couple of weeks deep into the retreat. I had shaved my head at the beginning of the retreat. I really, you know, was, um, wanted to let go. I wanted to renounce. And I was moving slowly, mindfully. And I was standing in line for food. And I always wore a shawl in those days, you know. And um, as I reached for this completely full serving pitcher of a delicious, oily, creamy dressing that I loved, my shawl caught, and the entire pitcher full of slimy mess fell on the wooden floor. And it was really loud. And I froze, you know. All 100 eyes were on me. For a moment, you know, I just had this flush of embarrassment course through me. Everyone was looking at me. Everyone was seeing how unmindful I was. My mind went from, from shame to noticing how much I cared what people thought of me and how painful that was. It was so important to me. But in the spaciousness of meeting that, meeting that with uh, equanimity, uh, it, something in me really relaxed. And I was just, and all of a sudden, just this, this very sweet laughter arose in me. And I, I laughed to myself with a lot of warm affection. So fame and disrepute. There, um, in Pali, there are two different words that are translated as equanimity, which points to two different aspects of it. And to me, kind of um, uh, points to ways of practicing with it also. Um, upeka, which is what, what many of us have heard, means to look over or have an overview. It's like being able to observe an experience without being caught by it. When we see the whole picture, we, we understand it. So it's like kind of the overview. Um, I have a good friend that would always be late to everything. We got in the habit of telling him um, that everything was earlier um, than it actually was, like an hour earlier. So we figured that would get him there on time. And one day he was over the house and a few of us were going for a hike. And lo and behold, he was ready to go on time, you know. So everyone else went to the car as he and I went to put on our shoes. But just as we're walking out the door, 
a poetry book I had on a shelf caught his eye. And he picked it up and just delightedly started reading it, oblivious to his waiting friends. This is how our minds tend to work. We can easily pick up whatever comes away, regardless whether it's helpful or not. But if we have a big picture, we keep in mind our friends are waiting in the car. What distracts us in meditation, right? A thought coming by, and we pick it up just like that book, just like that book, forgetting why we're meditating, forgetting that freedom is waiting for us in the car. The other word um, for equanimity, which I likely mispronounce, but, but just know that I do so with utmost equanimity. And that's um, tatra machatata. It means um, uh, to stand in the middle of all this. And I love that definition. You know, it's, it's just really standing in the middle of our lives. It's being centered in the middle of our experience being in balance. And that kind of leads you to see how concentration, which Gil talked about yesterday, how that leads to equanimity. Because when the mind is unified in samadhi, the hindrances aren't there. It will not pull and push by them. So we're in the center. And that being in the center naturally leads the mind to be able to abide in that, that balance, that equanimity. We're right in the middle of all of that. As we gradually develop these seven factors of awakening and we live in our lives, uh, a balanced life of blamelessness and integrity, our inner strength and stability grows in us and, and what we have is unshakable balance. We're like a tree with deep roots that's not easily blown about by the strong winds right in the middle of all this. Every wholesome state we experience has equanimity in it. Equanimity allows us to investigate a hindrance without rejecting it. Something I think I've mentioned more than once, just how we approach a hindrance needs to be wholesome. And that's the equanimity that's, that, you know, we're balanced and yes, I can see this. It helps us accept all the difficult parts of ourselves that are challenging to meet. Another way that um, we develop equanimity, some of us have uh, are familiar with practicing with the Brahma Viharas. Um, they're known as the four immeasurables or four divine abodes. Um, loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity is the fourth one. And But I, I like the way Gil uh, referred to them once, the four faces of love. I think that's really sweet. It's a wonderful way to think of these. Um, <clears throat> equanimity is another aspect of this unrestricted love towards all beings. 
as we develop it, it allows us to, allows the heart to live with an unconditional love. It helps us um, develop a deep acceptance of the full range of humanity, including, uh, including all the beings that are really, um, have been challenging to love. And um, it develops a heart that's like the sun that shines on everyone. And that's a freedom of the heart, a heart that doesn't say, no, no, I have to stop shining for a little bit. You know, that person isn't deserving. It's a heart that just shines for everyone. Equanimity supports all of the factors of awakening. As they become strong, we develop deeper and deeper insight. This is the, the deeper work of meditation. We begin to understand the truth of change, not only conceptually, not just idea of change, but in the very direct experience of things rising and passing away. We experience in our bones the, the, the truth that everything's just dissolving right in front of us. We experience the truth of dukkha, that all phenomena are unsatisfactory, that everything, everything arises and dissolves. And there's no place for the I, for the self to take a stand Nothing lasts long enough to be called a self because that too dissolves. Whatever has the nature to rise passes away. What would it be like if we really let this in? That's everything in our experience. If our understanding were complete, we wouldn't hold on to anything. In the Anapanasati Sutta, uh, the Buddha said, one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. When um, we consider equanimity as balance and centeredness, it makes it immediately accessible at any time, on or off the cushion. Because at any moment, we can just be centered. It just takes one moment to take a breath and to connect with our body the body at the center. This is an embodied practice. Maybe we connect with the breath or a soft belly 
connecting with her body in any posture or any situation we're in. You can naturally find our center. And that connection is the thread of our inner strength. The strength to become like a tree with deep roots that's not easily blown about by strong winds. So uh, I'll tell you one more little little story. Um, my husband and I set a three-month retreat at uh, IMS um, a couple of decades ago. This was in the olden days of residential retreats. Uh, on the last day of retreat, uh, to facilitate the ending of the retreat, the managers decided to change the lunch schedule. So normally there was just uh, one group eating at noon. So they decided there'd be two groups and um, you know, we'd split, they'd split them by the alphabet. And so they posted the day schedule and it said 12 noon was A to G and 1 p.m. was M through Z. They accidentally left out H through L. My husband, with all the wisdom of a yogi after a three month retreat, took a pen and added H through L equanimity practice. So um, as Gilbert reminded us this morning, in many ways, the practice is simple, be here, Pay attention and let go, let go of clinging. In a way, the rest of the teachings, as beautiful as they are, are different ways of pointing to that. So I'd like to end with a poem by um, Kozan Ichigyo. Uh, a 14th century Zen monk. Empty-handed, I entered the world. Barefoot, I leave it. My coming, my going, two simple happenings that got entangled. I'm going to read it again. Empty-handed, I enter the world. Barefoot, I leave it. My coming, my going. Two simple happenings that got entangled. So let's share a couple of minutes of silence. 